Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you're new with us, we are embarking on a newer study of the book of Revelation chapter by chapter. And in these early chapters, we're studying these letters uh, right by Jesus through John to these seven churches in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. And uh, Jesus uh, follows a similar pattern. He is walking among these, he calls them, he compares them to lampstands, these, these candles that he has set up in various places to bear light for him. And he walks around and he looks at their church and looks at what they're doing, what they're not doing. He points out what is going well and what needs to change. And then he, uh, he encourages, he exhorts them to finish well, that the overcomer is the one who will be found in the kingdom of God. So Thyatira is the church, the letter to the church we study today in verses 18 to the end of the chapter. And Thyatira is, was not as famous, not as impressive as some of these other cities were that we've studied before. It was a church that, or, or a city that had been in battle lying where it was. It was, it was uh, subject to many skirmishes. But when the Roman Empire put into effect the law called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that is, we're going to have peace everywhere even if we have to kill you to make peace, they threatened that uh, anybody who'd made trouble would be put to death, put in prison. That was greatly helpful to Thyatira. And when that peace was enforced there, they were protected from constant wars, they began to thrive. And the people there began to thrive, began to do well, began to prosper. And then it became a temptation like it was for these, uh, some of these other places where we've studied that a Christian had to decide at times, am I willing to lose my income? Am I willing to have my way of life uh, cut into? Am I, am I willing to suffer a setback financially or socially for following Christ? Am I willing to curb my sexual appetites to be faithful to Christ? These were the challenges that came to the first century Christian, and the people at Thyatira were of no exception. But Jesus challenges them as He does us in the same way that He does the others, in the same way He challenges everywhere in the Scripture. It is, this is the good news. Everything else is the bad news. Turn from that bad news to this, to my love. Let's begin reading in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on to a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron, and as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. In his novel, uh, The Source, James Mishner imagines a, a setting in 2200 B.C. where a man named Urbale worships two gods, two gods in the Roman pantheon, one a god of death and one a god of fertility. And uh, Urbale is desperate for his crops to thrive. It's, it looks like it's going to be a difficult farming year, so he goes to the priest. He finds out what he has to do to get to, to get success in his farming, and as was common in the day, it was prescribed that he would sacrifice his child. The Romans had little problem sacrificing children, even these to whom John is writing. Found it not so difficult to sacrifice their children if it meant success or do anything else that the gods required, if it meant financial success. And so Urbale uh, demanded that uh, this sacrifice be made, and he, he dragged his child and his daughter there for the appointed day and handed up his child against the screams of the child's mother, against the screams of his wife, handed up his child for the child to be sacrificed that he might be successful. Then the priest announced to the temple that those who had honored the God by this costly sacrifice would be rewarded the next week in the temple with the new temple prostitute. And Urbel's wife said that she looked at her husband and saw a desire in his eyes that she had not seen in a long time, and when it was announced that Urbale had earned the honor and was going to be rewarded with it, she was heartbroken as he lunged forward with eagerness to follow the priest. And Missioner imagines the wife and the bereft mother leaving the temple and saying to herself, if he had different gods he would be a different man. Missioner shows a lot of insight 
theologically. He shows insight into the worldview that we're encountering in this passage, and he, he did so to expose the worldview of our world as well. The theology, the, the truth that we become like our gods, and that if our gods are degraded as the Canaanite gods were, as the Roman gods were, if they are violent, we'll become violent. If they're angry, we'll become angry. If they, are, if they are lustful, we become lustful. We are degraded by our gods or we strive upward to be beautiful like our God, Jesus Christ. Ours is a very different God. He's been announced to us in chapter 1, to the one who loves us and gave himself and gave his blood for us that we might be a king, a kingdom of priests to his Father and our Father. This is the lovely Christ. This is the beautiful Christ we are called to adore because this is the one, unlike these other false gods, in the past or the idols in our lives today, this one loves us sacrificially, loyally, beautifully. And when we love Him in return, we become like Him. To turn our back on false gods, on other idols, is to turn our back on ugliness, on death, on degradation. And to turn toward Christ is to turn toward beauty and joy. G.K. Chesterton said that the Christian should approach culture as one who is at one and the same time fiercely optimistic and fiercely pessimistic. Or to put it another way, he said, we need a fiercer discontentment and a fiercer delight. A fiercer discontentment with all that the world says that we need or must be or the way we must think or the way we must emote. We must have a fierce distaste for that and instead have a fierce, a fiercer delight in the kingdom of God which brings love and joy and peace and beauty. Does Jesus love us fiercely in this passage? You bet he does. Even with these threats, these are fiercely loving threats. In verses 18 and 20 to 23, we are confronted not with a passive Christ, but with a fiercely loving one who loves us enough to threaten us with discipline if we disobey, or threaten us with hell if we refuse to bend the knee and receive Christ. You see, in verse 18, he has eyes like a flame of fire. I said that as we study the book of Revelation, we would, we would learn the Old Testament as well. And, and John is quoting Daniel, Daniel 10, almost word for word as he describes the Son of God who has come, who has come from heaven to earth and is now ascended in all of his glory at the right hand of the Father and is returning to earth this way, the Son of God who has, who has now flames, eyes with flames of fire, or as Daniel says, torches of fire. This Christ is one 
who is angry when those who bear the image of God fail to love themselves as much as God loves His image and succumb to the temptations and give themselves to the allurements of idols and false gods and become like them, are degraded by them. Christ is angry when His people continue in the self-harm of worshiping false gods, false idols. Idols are a source that, that can never be fulfilled. Idols demand. They're endless in their thirst. If you're chasing popularity, if you're chasing achievement, if you're chasing money, if you're chasing trying to keep your money, if you're chasing the allurement of the satisfaction you think a relationship will bring, if you're chasing anything that Jesus says is not good for you and does not build you up in the kingdom, in the, in the likeness of Christ, then you're running an endless race. You're constantly chasing your tail. You never catch up. It never satisfies. It only makes us angrier and angrier. Is that not possibly the source of our anger in America? Why are, the, why are we the angriest we have ever been in history when we have more, when we have more health care, more, a more abundant income, a thriving economy? Not everyone is benefiting from it, I understand. But why are we angry? And why do we enjoy anger? Why do we leap on the bandwagon of anger? Why are we constantly looking for someone to be angry with, reading for something to make us anger, angry, watching the news that only makes us angrier, listening for something in someone else's speech, even a friend or family member's speech, that will make us angry and we'll have to reject them too. It is what Tim Crider a number of years ago in the New York Times called an, the outrage pornography of our age. Outrage pornography. The, 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 the news feeds, social media is fed by things that make us angry because we lust for anger. It's a false god. And it's in keeping with this, this god that that uh, this false teaching that John is confronting here. When he says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Yes, she's similar, this, this false teaching. This false teaching is similar to what we confronted with the Nicolaitans and the, and the, the Balaam uh, false teaching that, that he compared to Balaam and compared to the Nicolaitans. But Jezebel is something a, a bit more sinister. Not only is this some teaching by uh, some false woman prophetess, 
But this is, this is one that combines not only the promise of material success and social advancement, if you'll just participate in the, in the, in the trade feasts where food sacrificed to idols is, you don't have to agree that the idols are anything. Just show up, make an appearance. It's a socially acceptable thing to do. It's the only way you're going to get by in society. She is teaching that, that it's okay for Christians to do that because, after all, God knows that you need to make a living. You've got to pay your bills. You've got to put your kids in college. So why take a stand that makes you look like a narrow fundamentalist? You know that gods are not... You know that, that what those people are doing is wrong. You know that that's a, that's a false perspective that is being encouraged. You know it's aligning you with something that is negative. But Jesus knows your heart. It's okay. And she combines that with, well, you know, it's only another step towards sexual immorality. I mean, you do have these lusts and God wired you that way. God made you that way. And so why not give in to that? That's just who you are. Follow your identity. Follow your desires. God wants you to be happy after all. And then it is merged with violence or anger. Jezebel was the Phoenician wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament and And it was Jezebel who pursued the prophets and put them to death, Elijah included, because they were opposing her. And and she had a program of bringing Baal worship to Israel. And this worship of fertility gods and, and, uh, and, and, and the promise of success in crops and so forth, material success and sexual indulgence. She thought this will... This will get the people going to church. This will build up things. Plus, it will put us in good stead with those nations around us. We won't be seen as these crazy people who believe in a God that you can't see and only one at that. And then if anybody opposes us, then we're going to, well, just kill them. This is not unlike our age. This is not unlike our culture. A culture that has become angry because we are not getting enough of what we want, what we lust for. And we've been told by our culture that we should, that we deserve it. We're entitled to it. No one should restrict our, restrict our sexual indulgences. No one should restrict our sexual choices. And no one should tell us that we need to follow a road that is so narrow that at times it puts us out of accord with with other people and could hurt our business. No teacher and no preacher should get in our way. The American church is saying too. Do you know in September, as of September, 70% of pastors in the country were either resigning their posts or moving to another church. I've never seen the time among my colleagues either who have, when when even Christians are attacking their pastors, their preachers from the left and the right because they're not pronouncing the message they want to hear and that furthers their indulgences or their prejudices. Thank you for being a different church, by the way. It's a delight to be here. But it's it's a grief across our country, even in our city. As people are just men and women are just quitting because of the persecution that comes from preaching the narrow way 
that doesn't feed cleanly into any media outlet and doesn't feed cleanly into either political party. In fact, it cuts across the grain of both. And so John calls on the leaders of the church at Thyatira, the pastor and the elders, to say, you must not tolerate this false teaching any longer. And then he turns to, he turns and and mentions this prophetess herself. And the the expanse of Jesus' grace is, is seen especially here because he says, I will, I would, I would have given her the gift of repentance. I offered her the gift, but she has turned her back on it. And because she has, she will she will be put on a bed of suffering. Her, her children will be dead. And what he's, using, he's using Old Testament language again, this Old Testament judgment language again. Maybe there is a threat of physical suffering if she does not quit this false teaching and those who follow her don't stop following. Jesus does have to give severe medicine at times to his church and even Christians because they're, 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 they're running with breakneck speed toward destruction. And so he has to, maybe he has to stop them dramatically. He has to give them a severe mercy. He may even have to make them sick to stop them because he loves them too much to continue to plunge toward death. He even offered that to Jezebel, the, the, this prophetess, and said if she would just take the gift, she too could be saved. But if she refuses it, she will suffer, and those who follow her will suffer. And not so much a threat against her, literally her children, but it means her legacy will be destroyed. There will be no one to follow her. I will, I will see to it that this false teaching is stamped out one way or the other. I prefer that you go about it yourselves as the officers of the church, but if you do not, I'll be forced to step in and stop it. That's the, the meaning as well in verse 27 when he talks about Jesus smashing earthen pots to broken pieces. This is Jesus' promise that he will purify his church of all false teaching. It's hard. It's hard, isn't it, sometimes to imagine Jesus being so angry, to, to imagine that the lamb on his throne has wrath. But it's not so hard if you've been loved well. If you've been loved well, then you've seen someone get angry with you when you're walking toward, running toward self-destruction. I saw that with great faithfulness and consistency in my father, and I haven't always appreciated that. I was just thinking the other day about something else I need to apologize to him for in my childhood. There's always something. And I thought of something else the other day, and it was one, well, I was coming back from, from a basketball trip. I was a, about 14 or 15 years old, and our coach was driving us, and we'd been a, a long uh, away game, and, and the coach was eager to get home. And he was driving the van, and my dad was following. And the coach uh, drove as, uh, was driving really fast on two-lane roads and in the dark, and it was raining way too fast for the conditions. My dad was desperately trying to keep up with him, even though my dad knew he was driving dangerously himself. And by the time we finally got back to the school, and my dad jumped out of the truck and laid into that coach. I was so embarrassed. 
And I said to my dad later, you have an anger problem. What makes you so angry? Why do you have to be so angry? And he said, because I love you. Now, I thought at the time in my omniscient 14-year-old self, what a stupid thing to say. I knew not to say it to him, but I thought it. Now I understand. Jesus is angry in this passage, not because he loves anger, not because he has outraged pornography, but because he loves you. He sees what this culture is doing to us. He sees how it drives us relentlessly. It's never satisfied. And because it's never satisfied, we're angry, and we take it out on our loved ones, even our, our spouses and our children and our parents and our, our colleagues, and even on one another in the body of Christ. Jesus turns us from that, that fiercely passionate, threatening anger is intended to turn us toward the beauty and the glory of His promises, which come in verse 19 and 24 to 29. He has, yes, He has these eyes like a flame of fire, but He has feet like burnished bronze. Now, the people of Thyatira knew what bronze was. They had a lot of it in their, or, in their inventory. They knew it was solid. If you wanted a, a pedestal, a base for something that was going to last and would be heavy enough to sustain forces against it, you made it out of bronze. And Jesus says, I have feet of bronze. You can... Your culture is always going to be shifting sand. Your people around you are making requirements of you. That's, it's going to be a constantly moving target. My feet are bronze. What I say today is what I've always said and what it will be true tomorrow. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. My word, my promises, my directives are always the same. I have feet of bronze. Not only is it a promise of solidity and surety, it's beautiful. I don't have just feet of bronze. He has feet of burnished bronze. It's when you understand that His way, His word, His directives, His promises are more beautiful than anything else anybody else has to offer you, then you will turn, as some of these Thyatirans did, toward these beautiful Actions. You see what he commends them for? Your love and faith, your servants, service and patient endurance. Jesus says, I appreciate. I take notice of. I'm intimately aware of those of you who are enduring in your service. Maybe nobody else has noticed you. Nobody else has taken note of it, but Jesus is writing down every detail with gratitude. He appreciates your plotting. He appreciates your long obedience in the same direction. He appreciates the sacrifices that you are making. He appreciates your loving faith, your love, he says, 
your patient endurance. I appreciate it. I love that you love me. And what is it that drives us? What is it that can sustain us? In the darkness of a cultural experience, in the darkness of, of, um, of, of persecution and reviling and, 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 and uh, putting us out of social circles and when no one notices, everyone seems to be against us. What is it that drives us forward? What keeps us in that loving faith and patient endurance? It's at the end of the text. It's the morning star, verse 28. Jesus, the beautiful morning star. What is the morning star? It's Venus. Isn't that what we learned in our, our high school our elementary school classes, Venus, the little planet that rotates within the Earth's orbit, and and it's slightly just after just after the sun goes down, Venus appears. It's sometimes called the evening star too, and Venus appears. It's the it's the single light in the darkness, and if there's no moon, and then and then it 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 runs slightly ahead of the sun, so that it's the first light in the early morning before the sun rises. Why is Jesus called the morning star or the evening star? Because when all else seems dark, when you have no other friend, no other light, Jesus is that light. And not just any light, but a beautiful light. That beautiful loving morning star is the one who calls us to turn away from all that degrades, all that sullies, the beautiful life of discipleship in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never done that in your life. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to take over your life. This is the time. Right now, in this instant, ask Him Take over my life. Take my sins away. Give me your righteousness and make my life beautiful, no matter what it costs me. I know I tell this story all the time, or it seems like I do, because it's so special to me about a great hero of mine, Francis Schaeffer, who was a famous apologist in, in Switzerland for many years that he was my predecessor at Covenant Church in St. Louis, and on one occasion he was in France. He was in Paris with some friends, and, and Schaefer was always looking for a way to lead people to Christ, but starting with their dignity as image bearers of God. And so he, he saw a prostitute plying her trade along the streets, soliciting customers, and Schaefer crossed the street and engaged her instead, and he said, how much? His friends were horrified. The little Presbyterian preacher soliciting a prostitute right in front of our eyes. How much, he said. She gave her price, and he said, no, that's not enough. And she was a bit confused, as you can imagine. She, she raised her price. He said, that's not enough. I don't understand, she said. 
I mean, you're worth infinitely more than that. You bear the image of God. Jesus Christ died for you. He would not shed His blood for someone who was worth just that much. You are worth infinitely more. That's not enough. It's what Jesus says to you and me today. As we dally with the, the gods and the, and the idols and the temptations of this world in our culture, he says, you're worth more than that. I made you to be kings and priests, to reign with me forever. So what if it costs you a little bit in this world? So what if people laugh at you a little bit? So what if it costs you some customers? What if it costs you your job? What is that in comparison to the eternal experience of the beauty and the glory of the morning star who will someday say, well done, thank you, well done, thank you for doing that for me. Now enter into the fullness of my joy. Let's do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even when you tell us hard things, we know it comes from your heart of love. And even when you tell us difficult and threatening things, we never have to read very far to find the grace of your promises. Please turn us away from all these things that we chase that are not satisfying, that are making us angry, degrading us. Help us turn to the beauty of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.